Off me pretzels. Oh, uh, <laughs> I'll eat those today. Good morning, church. Happy New Year to you. Doesn't feel too happy this morning. What's going on today? <laughs> Did you stay up late? Who made it till midnight? Show of hands. Who made it? Yeah, good job. Good job. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't last night. Uh, but it's an exciting time, isn't it? The New Year's... Um, I don't know, there's something strange about humans that we, we sort of like this idea of New Year's. It's something powerful, I guess, about new beginnings. You know, the idea of New Year's resolutions goes all the way back to the Romans. That, that humans, as long as we've had a calendar to operate our lives around and have designated a time in which a year would begin, uh, have practiced this idea of setting resolutions. Anybody set the resolutions yet? Anybody do that? Uh, no hands for that one. We're all we're good, right? Once you reach perfection, who needs resolutions? But if you haven't yet and you're looking to do that, let me give you a few tips. Here's um, in 2015. Here were the top top four New Year's resolutions. Number one, we're going to lose weight. Amen. Number two, we're going to get organized. Anybody ever want to get organized? Number three was to spend less money, and number four was to save more money. Now, you ready for this? Let me tell you the top four broken resolutions in 2015. <laughs> Lose weight, get organized, spend less money, and save more money. Do you know that 92% of resolutions are broken? 92%. That's kind of a lot, isn't it? Um, but when I look at my own life, I'm not too shocked by that. My question then really is this. Here's your question this morning. Why... Do we break our New Year's resolutions? Why? Why do you think we do that? Now, you might be feeling a little bit like smart Alec this morning and say, well, maybe we just picked too hard of resolutions. If we just picked easier resolutions, we'd never break them, right? No, that's, that's uh, really not the reason. Why do we do that? Well, I did some research to find out because I wanted to help you this year. That's not really what the lesson's about, but I did want to help you this year be able to maybe keep your resolutions. And there's actually... A scientific reason why you break your New Year's resolutions. Are you ready for it? The big fancy phrase is called effective forecasting. Effective with an A, forecasting. And here's how it works. Here's how effective forecasting works. Here's why we break our New Year's resolutions. Number one, the first thing we do is thinking about resolutions, just having a thought about a resolution makes you feel better. Did you know that? That the moment you tell yourself, I'm going to lose weight in 2017, you automatically have instant gratification about concluding that you think you're going to lose weight. That makes you feel better. The second thing that happens is this. It leads you to believe that the doing of the resolution will also feel good. So before 2017 starts and we decide we're going to lose weight or we're going to eat healthy or we're going to save money, that thought about that makes our brains feel good. We, we feel better about ourselves when we think about resolutions. And then, because of that, we forecast ahead and think the doing of that deed will actually feel good too. Like we picture ourselves in our new outfit from Christmas, going to the gym with our new water bottle that matches our new shoes, and we're ready to work out because that's going to feel good. But you know what happens? The actual going to the gym doesn't really feel good. 
So we choose the couch over the gym and Cinnamon Toast Crunch over kale. And we are in February and we've broken our resolution. But you do know there's actually a reason why going to the gym doesn't feel good? Because there's some people that actually like going to the gym. And you know why saving money doesn't always feel good? There are actually people that save money. And spending less doesn't always feel You know why those things don't feel good? Here's where our resolutions hit the hiccup and where they stop, okay? It's because whatever you've made a resolution to do, you're probably not already good at it. And number two, you've associated negative thoughts, negative beliefs about that resolution. For example, going to the gym will hurt. For a while it will. But it brings incredible feelings. To those who, who do exercise a lot would argue that it actually brings great, it uh, doesn't hurt, it actually makes you feel better. Or maybe the idea of saving money, you might think, it's impossible. I don't have enough money. I've got too many bills. I've got things everywhere. I don't have enough money. I've got everything that has to go places and I can't save. Or maybe you think health food just is always going to taste bad. Whatever resolution you've made that's difficult for you and it's hard to do, we typically have associated negative beliefs about those things. And so when we get up and we decide we're going to go to the gym, we're already thinking this is going to be terrible. Or we are looking at trying to save money and spend less, and we think this is not going to be fun. And because of our negative beliefs, we don't enjoy the resolution. We don't want to do it. So here's the idea that, that people are saying about effective forecasting. The key to keeping resolutions is this. You actually have to find a way to develop new and positive beliefs about your resolution. Just ask a person who maybe doesn't exercise very much, who starts exercising six months or 12 months later. That's a long time, but ask that person six months or 12 months later, do they value exercising? Is it actually something they enjoy? Is it actually something that brings them benefit? And you ask that person six to 12 months later and they would tell you a resounding, yes, I actually don't hate exercising, I enjoy exercising. Ask the person who's deep into debt and dead broke, after six months to 12 months of saving money and paying off debts and getting out of that, if saving your money and spending less actually is a good thing. They'll tell you, yes, I actually enjoy it. What's happened? Their beliefs about those things have changed. Therefore, they now enjoy doing those things. So I tell you all this story. Well, I do want you to keep your resolutions, but there's something more to it. Because the Christian life sometimes operates for us like a New Year's resolution. It's a start to a new season in which we are planning on being new people. But this is more than just shedding pounds or saving dollars. When we talk about being a Christian, being in Christ, what we're talking about is being recreated into the person who reflects the nature and the image of God, who looks like God, who is looking like we are always supposed to look. That's the idea of being a Christian. But like resolutions, a lot of Christians aren't having success with that. And so our question then is this, really, not just how can we keep our resolutions, but how do we actually live a new life in Jesus Christ? Well, like resolutions, the way you live as a Christian is completely dependent upon your beliefs about Christianity. And what Paul is doing here in our text 
in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is shaping our beliefs. See, we've actually got to mine our way down into the belief aspect of us if we're ever going to live outwardly a new life in Jesus Christ. And here's where Paul does for us three really simple things. Number one, he starts with a conclusion. He makes a conclusion. So that's where we're going to start. He shapes his considerations, and then he follows a command. Number one, he starts with his conclusion. Um, if you look in verse 14, it says this, The love of Christ controls us, compels us, demands from us. Uh, I like the way that the New Living Translation says it. It says, The love of Christ leaves me no other choice. Here's what Paul says. Because we have concluded this. You see, most of us know things about Jesus. Most everybody knows some th things about Jesus. They know facts about him maybe where he was born, how long that he lived, how he died. Maybe they even believe facts about his resurrection. Um, maybe they believe some facts about his moral character and the things that he expects of his followers. But rarely do people take the step that Paul takes in verse 14, which is making a conclusion about this. You see, a conclusion is the judgment you make about what you should actually be doing in light of the facts that you know. So, for example, um, you might know facts about um, how to get a home mortgage. You might know that you have to apply. You might know that you have to have a particular credit. You might know that you might have to have a certain debt-to-income ratio. You might know that you have to have, make a certain amount of money to be able to get a certain amount of dollars in loan. You might know all of those facts about a home mortgage. But until you make the judgment that I have to pay this mortgage to stay in my house, it won't really change your behavior. So there's a difference between knowing facts about something and then making a conclusion that drives your action. You see, what Paul is doing is making a conclusion about Jesus Christ. You see, his conclusion surrounds Jesus when it comes to his faith. You listen to his conclusion in verse 14. He says, we've concluded this, that one person has died for all, therefore all people must be dead, spiritually dead. And he died for all, Jesus, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, what Paul does is he takes the facts of Jesus Christ and then he makes a conclusion about Jesus that demands his action and his response. His conclusion about Christianity and about faith is not based upon his parents, his lineage, his social standing, his outcomes of life. His conclusion is based upon, he's looked at Jesus Christ, who Jesus is. And in light of the facts of Jesus, Paul is making a conclusion about how humans should live. In light of the fact, that here's the conclusion, one person died for all people. That must mean that all people were spiritually dead if one person had to die for all of them. Therefore, I conclude this, that if he died for all people, all people should live for him. Do you hear how that's different than just Jesus Christ was born in a manger in Bethlehem, lived a nice, good 33 years of life, was di he died a cruel death and raised on the third day? Those are facts. But the conclusion is, what are you going to do about that? Every person, if they're going to live a new life in Jesus Christ, 
has to start with knowing the facts, but secondly, come to this point. You must make a conclusion about your life in light of Jesus Christ. You've got to do that. And until you look at his, li his life and then make conclusions about your life, how you should respond to him, you won't ever really change your life. You won't really ever live a different life. And so you've got to start by making what Paul did, a conclusion about Jesus. Now, number two, in verse 16, this conclusion had dramatic impact on the way that Paul considered other people. Notice verse 16, he says, From now on, therefore, therefore means because of this conclusion, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. You see, what Paul is saying is because of this conclusion that I've made that our lives should be lived in honor and respect and out of great admiration for Jesus Christ, this changes the way that he considers all people. Not just people outside of himself, but also himself as well. And the simple answer is this that Paul says over and over, that I do not regard or consider people just according to the flesh. Now that's a biblical way of saying, but Paul oftentimes uses this phrase according to the flesh. And what he's getting at is saying that there are things deeper than just what my eye can see. That there are things beyond just what humans can do and produce. That the flesh is just a, a, a statement that means of human production. And so here's what this means. Number one, in Paul's conclusion what is, uh, about Jesus that demands us to make this consideration that we don't regard people, even ourselves, according to the flesh anymore. That means two things. Number one, our problems in life are more than just problems in the flesh. Meaning we have more than just weight problems or money problems or habit problems. We have more than just other people problems. Our problems in life are more than just flesh. Our problems actually are found in the deep battle against sin. Paul would say it in another place in Ephesians chapter 6 that we don't wage against, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age. He's saying our fight, our struggle, our problem is more than just the trivial things that we look at in the mirror or in the bank account and say, I don't like what I see. That our challenges and our problems are much deeper than that. That our problem is actually with the problem of sin. But our problem is, uh, but this consideration is not just that our problems are more than just flesh. It also means that our potential is more than just flesh. That we actually have more potential than just a better scale, a better number on the scale, or a better account, uh, money in our accounts, or better habits, or having better people. Our potential is way more than just the things that we see with our eyes. Our potential is actually a life that reflects the sinless life of Jesus Christ. We were made for more than just temporary, short-term achievement. We were made to actually be like Jesus Christ. And so when you make this conclusion about Jesus, about your life, that demands some movement, and that changes your consideration about human life, that our problems are more than just flesh and our potential is more than just flesh, that brings us to obey obedience of the command in verse 17. Verse 17 is a really unique verse. I want you to look at it. And see if you can solve sort of the, the riddle that's in there. There are three statements in verse 17 that are just blatant facts. Verse 17 has three statements that are just simple facts. That's all they are. And there's one 
command. Three facts, one command. Can you figure it out? Read it, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You've got to be very careful to see it, but there are three things that are just truths that you need to accept. Number one, that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. This is not just a statement of potential. This is a statement of matter of fact. That if anyone is in Jesus Christ, that they have transferred their faith, their trust from themselves to Jesus Christ through faith, repentance, confession, and being immersed into Jesus Christ, if they have done that and have faith in Jesus, they are not just themselves being brought out as a new creation. They are part of a new creation that will come in Jesus Christ. Fact number two, he says, old things have passed away. That's a fact. Old things have passed away. That phrase, old things, is the phrase that we would use to when we were like um, chronicling history. Meaning our moral makeup, our moral character... Um, the deeds of our past, the things that we've done, the things that we've said, the places that we've been, the person that we've been. The old things have perished or passed away. That's fact number two, if you're in Christ. And fact number three is this. The new has come. Those are the three facts. Do you see what the command is? What is the command that Paul gives you to live a new life in Jesus Christ? Let me give you a hint. It's one word. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. That one word stands in the middle of those two things. Do you see it? The word is behold. That is the only word in this verse that is a commandment for you to follow. This is the commandment that you behold. That word behold is the word that they would use in the first century to describe a person who was looking at a fine um, piece of artwork or listening to a beautiful piece of music or watching um, a beautiful, maybe theatrical display. When you behold something, it means to gaze at it, to stare at it, to observe it until you understand every bit of its meaning. Until you get the message that the artist was trying to convey to you. Until you understand its depths, what it's trying to teach. And so if you were standing in front of a piece of artwork and gaze at it until you understood the heartbeat of the artist, that's what it means to behold. Well, what does this mean? What kind of commandment is that to behold? Well, he says that what are we supposed to behold? Well, he says that we're supposed to behold the new things. The new things have come. Behold, that which is new has come. Does this mean that we're supposed to behold the way that I'm new? My progress? Am I supposed to behold how 2016 is gone and just forget about the things that I messed up and only pay attention to the things that I did well? No, no, no. This phrase is not radically individual. This phrase is bigger than that. Notice how he describes it. He says, behold, the new what tense is this verb? Has come. There's a newness that you are supposed to behold that actually came even before Paul was writing this letter himself some 30 years after Jesus. There is something new that you are supposed to gaze at, to behold, to understand that is brand new that came even before Paul was writing this letter. And that newness is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. 
It is the new covenant that we now have in Jesus, that we are bought by his blood and made in a relationship with God. It is the new sacrifice that isn't offered year after year under the old system, but once for all was offered, and now forgiveness is granted to all people. It is a new temple where you can enter in into Jesus Christ, and where the veil that separates God and man is torn, and you can convey or you can have intimacy with God. It is a new priest who intercedes for us at the right hand of God as an advocate. It is a new kingdom by which new rules apply, and we live under a new ethic. And it is a new Savior, one that you have never considered. One who is greater than any Savior you've ever looked for in your life, including yourself. We are called here in this, tent, in this statement here to behold Jesus Christ. You see, beholding Jesus and all that is true about Him is the key to your life actually being transformed. It's kind of a strange idea, but the idea of gazing at Jesus and understanding Jesus and beholding Jesus is the key that unlocks you living your new life. The reason we don't live a new life in Jesus Christ is because we are not convinced about the new realities that are in Him. Like resolutions, we still have negative thoughts about things in Christianity that keep us from living a new life, just like the resolutions. For example, when I say the word confession, how many of you have really positive thoughts that well up into your mind? Does it feel good when I talk about confession? Or do you think of things like, well, I don't want to talk about my sin because I'm so maybe embarrassed of it? Or are you in just such denial of sin that you just won't even talk about it? See, without Jesus Christ and understanding that his sacrifice paid for sin, you'll either deny your sin or you'll be in despair of your sin, but you won't confess your sin. But when you know who Jesus is, you'll openly confess because you know it's forgiven. Do you see how Jesus and the reality of him changes confession? How about repentance? And if you ever think about when we talk about repentance, does it sound hard and difficult, gritty, not sure I can do it? It's because we've got a false belief about repentance. We forget that sin has been paid for. We forget that the power for us to change is not found in our strength, but in the strength that God supplies us. And so the answer of turning to God to get strength to live a new life is not what we think about repentance. We often think about, I'll lose out on all the fun that I'm having, or life won't be as good, or I won't be able to change. Those are false beliefs about repentance, and so we don't do it. How about the idea of dying to yourself? When I say dying to yourself, do you think positive ideas, thoughts? Or do you think things like, well, I won't find joy and happiness until I really find myself? Jesus says you won't find your life until you die to yourself. And how about this statement, last one? You are a person who is infinitely loved. You okay with that statement? You accept it okay? Are you able to receive that statement? Or do you have false beliefs prohibiting you from believing that statement that you are infinitely loved? I am week by week overwhelmed by a vast majority of people who have an incredibly deep hatred for themselves. It's overwhelming. It's unbelievable the amount of hatred that people have for themselves. And as I speak in this room about that problem to people that are here today, 
I'm guessing that you're not shocked about that statement because you might experience it yourself. When I ask people, you know, about themselves, to describe themselves, it's always, always a massive list of things that they don't like. I draw a spectrum for people oftentimes between on one end you have self-love, things you love about yourself, and on one end you have self-hate. And you know what list people are really good at filling up? What do you think? Self-hate. When we talk about self-love, they turn away from it. They can't do it. You see, most people have this deep-rooted hatred of themselves that stems from our sin, the brokenness of our sin. But here's what we do. We project that belief of ourselves onto God and assume God has the same belief about us that we have about ourselves. And that false belief prevents us from access to the understanding that we are loved. Our false beliefs about this new life in Jesus Christ is actually what keeps us from transformation. Our answer to each of our false beliefs is found in gazing, beholding the beauty of Jesus Christ, especially his work at the cross. The answer for every one of your false beliefs, every single one of them, is found in a deeper understanding of the cross of Jesus Christ. And when you understand it, when you look at it, when you gaze upon it and get it, it begins to deconstruct all the false beliefs you have and rebuild true beliefs to let you live in Jesus Christ. So here's my challenge to you this morning on how to obey, and we'll be done. Number one, the only, the only thing, I challenge you this year to confront your false beliefs with the cross of Jesus Christ. And here's how you do that. You take the scripture that describes what a life of a Christian looks like, and you lay that on top of your life, and you see where it doesn't line up. For example, Christianity, you're supposed to have peace and joy. Do you have peace and joy? You're not supposed to worry. Do you worry? You're supposed to be released from the guilt of sin. Do you still have guilt? You're supposed to know that you're loved. Do you know that you're loved? You see, you take scripture and you lay it on top of your life, and where things don't line up, there's where your false beliefs are. And you've got to challenge those false beliefs with the truth of Jesus Christ. And when you do that, you will live a transformed life in Jesus Christ. What a better time. What better time is there than right now at the beginning of the year to start a new life with Jesus? If you need to do that, we're always available, most certainly now during the song, after the service, and anytime. Let's stand and sing this song.